And that was Montreal with Happy Yellow Bumblebee. So guess what we'll be talking about today? Bees, bees and more bees. So there's an urban myth that beekeepers in the 18th century used to sing to their bees, believing that it made them happy and that happy bees produced sweeter honey. If true, we're going to have to do a hell of a lot of singing. With nearly two-thirds of our food production dependent on the existence of bees and other pollinators, we won't make it without our bees. The world's honeybees have been in steep decline for over a decade decade, extraordinary losses in bee populations have been witnessed globally, resulting in a 30% loss of honeybee colonies every year. Native bee populations have fallen by an estimated 40-50% to 50% globally. The overuse of pesticides and herbicides, human activity, urban development and modern agricultural practices resulting in the loss of habitat and food sources for bees have all contributed to the current crisis. So how can we support our bees and ensure that the ACT remains bee-friendly? Uh, joining us today, we have Cormac Farrell with us in the studio. Cormac is a Canberra-based beekeeper and environmental scientist working for Umwelt in bushfire protection and ecology. He is also the head beekeeper at Parliament House and immediate ex-president of the Canberra Regional Beekeepers Association. He currently runs over a dozen hives in Canberra and the surrounding region and produces award-winning honey and mead. Welcome to the show, Cormac. G'day. Thanks very much for having me on. You are welcome. So that is quite a bio. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit what brought you to bees. <laughs> well, I'm actually a botanist is my main. I'm a forester by trade. And I was into native bees originally because they are a critical pollinator for most of the plants I was working with. So I was always into native bees. And honeybees, I've, I've come a bit late to it, only about sort of eight years ago now. We, my partner and I, we bought a house. And we had a beautiful apricot tree, and it didn't set fruit the first year. Being a botanist, I had a look and went, oh, that's insufficient pollination. So we said, well, I know how to fix that. I'll get a, a hive of honeybees, and that will, that will pollinate that crop for us. It worked beautifully. We had this huge, almost a glut of apricots after that, and the garden went brilliantly, and so did all the neighbors' gardens. But it just sort of snowballed from there. And... Next thing I know, it's sort of it's eight years later. I'm I'm head beekeeper for Parliament, and it's uh, it's sort of become a bit of a, a passion. So, it's still I still love native bees, and we have both native stingless bees and honey bees at at the Australian Parliament. But also, there's a whole range and beautiful range of native bees all through the suburbs in Canberra, and the whole honeys, as they're known, mm -hmm. have created these this really clever program of putting nest boxes for native bees all through the whole village so there's some really lovely initiatives happening with ACT government and and local community groups to support bees and beekeeping in the community. Wonderful and we're going to have someone from the Hall Honeys on in about an hour joining us to uh, talk about that Fantastic. project as well. So how did you end up at Parliament House? That's um, interesting. It's, it's pretty funny it's, it's, a, it's a long and, and kind of humorous story so I was allowed, my partner said, you can have one hive in the backyard. That's your limit. Okay, no problems. Then there was a small disaster. The bees swarmed, as they do. When you're starting out beekeeper, you'll often, a swarm will get away from you. And it settled on her favorite dress. And she said, if they build comb on my favorite dress, you're dead. So I had to quickly put it in a box. And she said, that's fine, but you're only allowed one hive in the backyard. I went, okay. So I talked to the then employer and they were, so can we put one at work? Actually on the, we had this beautiful balcony in the city and they, there was a lot of, you know, quick approvals done, checks and safety checks. And then we were, we were beekeeping as a business. That was with my former company, Oricon. And that 
sort of snowballed, but then we had to move offices. And this is really an interesting point for urban design. The new office we moved into, there was no safe roof access. It was designed, the roof was just designed with a single entryway to the roof that was a two-story vertical ladder with no fall arrest. So it was like, well, I'm not going anywhere near that. Um, and the roof was just an afterthought. And of course, now all over the world, the roofs of cities are suddenly important real estate. And there's a lot of regulations being put in that you can't just have a roof. You have to have solar panels, you have to have beehives, you have to have a garden on top of your roof to, it actually reduces what's called the urban heat island mm-hmm. effect, which is one of the main impacts of climate change. So we found that, okay, well, we, we're moving offices and we can't take the bees with us. So we needed somewhere to put the bees and we started to talk to a whole bunch of people. And about that time, Parliament had just released a report on beekeeping in Australia and highlighting the critical importance of bees in supporting about $5 billion worth of agricultural production. So they were interested in in setting up a small apiary as a demonstration. So the nice thing about it is it, it produces knowledge mostly and engagement so that the, the parliamentarians and the staff can have an actual go at practical beekeeping, including both native and, and uh, exotic honeybees, because honeybees, of course, are not native to Australia but they're important for agriculture. But the other nice thing is we've we've started producing gifts, gift jars of honey. So they're given to foreign dignitaries, but also when we have a surplus, they're sold in the shop and they sell out in about an hour. <laughs> we've also started making mead and honey-infused vodka because, you know, we we thought it would be fun. As, as you do. When you as you do. Eat. You know, yeah. you have an oversupply. We had some, some honey that was starting to ferment because we had to pull a box off a little bit early, uh, preparing for winter. And we were like, well, we don't want to waste it. We don't have to tip it down the sink. So let's actually try and make a bit of mead. And that worked beautifully. We had a local business called Stone Dog, which are a specialist meadery. And they came in and made this amazing mead. And I think we, we actually that's in produ- the second batch is in production right now. So the other nice thing about the, the alcohol, well, we don't want to promote alcohol too much. The nice thing is for a lot of people and a lot of visitors to Parliament, they can't take um, honey back to their their home countries. There's a lot of very severe biosecurity controls in place all over the world to try and stop that spread of disease, which is the main thing. Diseases and pesticides are the two things really hitting bees. So, but they can take they can take alcohol products back because they're pasteurised, they're sterilised. It's all good. So that's how we we ended up making um, both honey, alcohol, and a bit of fun on the way. That's fantastic. Well, you're going to have to remind us at the end where we can buy some of this. <laughs> um, so. I know coming into winter now, the bees are going to sleep, essentially, so they, their activity slows down. And yeah. uh, and how long are they, is it correct to say that they're dormant? Or Well, it, it actually <laughs> depends on the bee. So there are 20,000 species of bee worldwide, <laughs> and Australia, we, we punch above our weight. We've got, I think, around 2,000-plus species of bees. We're finding <laughs> new ones every day. Um, and these are native bees? These are native bees. Wow. So we've the exotic honeybees. They form a big colony, and they're the weirdos of the bee world. So they're just one of these 20,000 species. They're the weirdos because they stay awake all through winter. A lot of other bees, like the blue-banded bees and teddy bear bees that people will see in their gardens, they, they actually become completely dormant. They lay eggs, and the eggs stay in a dormant state until spring. And then the adults, unfortunately, once they're finished laying their eggs, they actually die. So that's how they survive winter. But the, the honeybees, they stay awake. They they retract back to what's called a winter cluster, essentially a, a small ball of bees. And they they hang out, they eat their honey and, um, and just hang out and wait for spring to arrive. 
Then when spring arrives, away they go. They, mm. they explosively expand, again, using their honey. Mm. And that's a Im- really important part of, of beekeeping, is making sure that you don't take too much honey off the colony, that you make sure they always have enough honey to both survive winter and then for that spring build-up. The spring build-up is when they chew through most of their honey mm. stores. Uh, they really, really need a lot of honey to, to make you know, new bees, essentially, mm. and to survive while, while spring's in, in the air. And how far are bees uh, roaming to collect uh, nectar? So honeybees, they yeah. go out to five kilometres, mm-hmm. and native bees are around about 250 to 800 metres, depending on the species. So if you're seeing native bees in your garden, they really are your bees. They are your local bees, and this is where home gardeners, and one of the lovely things about Canberra, is that we've got all these, we're, we're a city of gardeners. And that means we produce some of the best honey. In fact, uh, one of the, some samples from one of the other beekeepers locally uh, won, the, won the gold award a few years back at the uh, Royal Easter Show, which is probably the most mm-hmm. prestigious Australian um, agricultural show. And that was a brilliant result. So that's, that's a really nice thing. But the, the one nice thing about the ACT government is they've just revised, and I was part of the revision for their street tree planting guides, and that's included pollinator resources. So they're, they're making a real effort, not just to, to produce beautiful trees and grow them along, but make, it, make the urban forest functional so that we have this nice function. They take other things into account, um, fire, for instance, fire protection on the urban fringes, but also things <coughs> like not shading out solar panels. Mm-hmm. But that's meant they're starting to plant things like melaleucas and banksias, mm. which are fantastic honey-producing mm plant but for example an analysis i did for ACT government a few years ago there's 21,000 um flowering trees in the urban forest in belconnen for instance so you can produce actually a lot of honey a lot of really fantastic high quality honey in canberra and i had heard too with honey that um if you consume honey that has been um, created by bees in your immediate area it actually helps your immunity that there's something to do with um uh, you know, if we've got allergies to various things and you consume local honey, it actually helps you deal with your allergies. Yeah, I have heard that. I've, I don't think it's been proven beyond reasonable doubt, but I think it certainly doesn't hurt. And I know a lot of people, they really feel eating local honey, they, they notice in their own mind a, a difference in their, in their health and their, their feeling of well-being. Mm. The other thing people love about it is it's a nice local product. It's, yeah. a, it's a taste of their local environment. And one of the nice, nicest things about beekeeping is does change how you see the world. You start to you start to notice when flower the, the rhythm of flowers in your local area, because that's important for you to understand for when you're managing your bees. But also, it's just this lovely, um, this lovely appreciation of of the landscape, its function, how important it is, not just beauty, but actually what what those flowers do. Mm, reminds me of a story that Paul Stamets tells. He's the uh, one of the world's most eminent uh, fungus scientists and. He tells a story of how the bears in the Northern Hemisphere, they get cranky at times and put big scratches in trees, which grows a particular sort of woodcock fungus. And the bees will come to the fungus and actually self-medicate themselves. And they've actually isolated a few of these funguses and done trials with bees that have got various stuff that they're getting off of the varroa mites, various diseases, and the, the improvements in the bee health have been phenomenal there. So... Yeah, yeah, like you're I've, saying, I've it's connected that. and observing. and <laughs> Yeah, bees make a, a product. So people would most be mostly familiar with honey. Mm-hmm. But there's another product that bees make called propolis. Mm-hmm. And the, the 
the fungi and other resins and plant resins are incorporated into that propolis. And that's their medicine cabinet. Mm -hmm. But it's also there. So the entire interior of a honeybee hive is, is coated in this propolis. And native bees do that as well. So native bees use propolis. Native stingless bees use propolis mm -hmm. as well. And it was kind of, it's kind of one of the cool things about native stingless bees is they had an important part in the history of the country because the Australian indigenous population were the first you know, major, major society to have ready access to antibiotics because these bees, their honey is steeped in the propolis. So it's quite different to European honeybee honey. It's got a lot more propolis in it, a lot more antibacterial action. So they, they make a lot less of it, but chiefs, they would actually make a medicine. They would soak pads of, of spiderweb. So spiderweb clots blood really effectively. And they would soak these pads in the in the native stingless bee honey. So the, state, the stingless bee honey is a um, is an antibiotic, and the spider webs are a blood clot, a blood clotting agent. So they would then have an antibacterial bandage. <coughs> so if they got injured, hurt, spear injuries, whatever happened to them, though they, they had these these field dressings essentially that would would heal the injuries. You notice that when. Um, when you read the accounts of people, the people when Europeans first turned up, they, they said, you know, people had scars of major injuries that Europeans simply would not have survived. And they're like, you know, how did you survive that? That would normally kill you from infection. And it was because they had a whole, there wasn't just their stingless bee honey, but it was a whole range of antibiotics they had availability for. It's yeah, really quite, it's quite clever. And honey's got tremendous preservative qualities too. Like I believe they found it in um, pyramids in Egypt. It's yes. still, still functional, still viable. It, it never goes off. It yeah. never goes off. It's, it's a combination of acidity, the sugars, and a little bit of peroxide. You can't taste it, but there's a little bit of peroxide mm -hmm. that the bees mix into the honey, as well as some of the antibacterial mm -hmm. compounds. It never goes off. It'll mm -hmm. crystallize. So you'll see often if you mm -hmm. have an old jar, it'll crystallize. But there's nothing wrong with it. Um, all you do is just leave it, leave heat the jar gently. It'll turn back into liquid honey, and yeah, the the current record that we've found of honey is three and a half thousand years uh, of of ancient Egyptian honey, and as far as we can tell, I don't think any, anyone's. It's too valuable to eat, but when they did the analysis, they went, no, this is perfectly fine. You could eat this; it would taste the same. Wow. Um, it's a kind of a, a wonderful time capsule mm. because bees incorporate pollen mm. into their honey. So that then tells us what the flowering plants were. And there's a kind of a lot of uh, really cool archaeology going on around bees mm. because the old nests have the old pollen. They're even able to pull out fossilised pollen and then see what sort of plants the bees were feeding on. So bees evolved around about the time of the dinosaurs. So about uh, they've been in their current form for about, about 50 million years as far as we can mm. tell. Because I believe there is a very small batch of plants, or we call prehistoric plants, that actually didn't need pollinators. They were self-pollinators. Yes, exactly. And oh, they they yeah, they didn't use birds. They didn't use insects. Mm. So, when you have your massive hay fever, mm. that is because the pines, which evolved before bees, mm. have to dump because they have to mm. throw their pollen into the air, and they have to throw huge amounts of it to make sure it gets mm. to the next plant. Whereas the, the great innovation and efficiency bees create is they will go to the flower, they'll pick up the pollen, they'll take it directly to the next flower. And so that means that the plant has to produce exponentially less pollen. So a lot of the hay fever that some people have is actually from wind pollinated plants because they have to just throw such a huge volume of pollen into the air. Um, but but when, you have, when you do eat local honey, 
what you are eating is a small sample of those pollens. And that's that's the that's believe that's a mechanism for how it does give sort you of like how homeopathy works, where you take a small dose of something to develop immunity to it. Or? I think so. I think yeah. I think I have to say, as a scientist, homeopathy's <laughs> been debunked a lot. <laughs> but but yeah, it's that it's that basic idea of immune of creating immunity through through a small amount of ingestion of something. That's amazing. So bees are incredibly hardworking. Like I was just reading some statistics here that um, that a bee only makes about half a teaspoon of honey in their lifetime. It's even less. Oh it's actually goodness. kind of sad. It's, it's about yeah. one sixteenth of a teaspoon in her whole life. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a European honey bee. And for we don't know exactly how much native stingless bees because they do produce honey um, as well. And and for the for the native bees, they produce a sort of a honey honey paste for their for their young. So they create like a little egg chamber and they fill that with a mixture of, of honey and nectar. Sorry, sorry, mm. of pollen and nectar. Mm. And bees keep honeybees keep things quite separate. Mm. So they will have cells in the honeycomb just for pollen, and they'll have cells in the honeycomb just for honey. And what they do is they'll tend to make something called bee bread, where they mix mm. the two together and it sort of ferments into this sort of like this bread product. And that's what they feed the baby bees. And sometimes us, some people mm-hmm like that they actually will specifically extract the bee bread and want to eat that i've eaten it myself um i've got to say not a fan what i really do like though and the chefs we've we've played around with this at parliament because the chef uses the honey and bee products a lot is that you can do something called a pollen trap at Mm. the at the front of the the entrance because the bees put pollen they mix a little bit of nectar to make it sweet and sticky and they stick it on their legs when they're carrying pollen and you can put a special screen that knocks those pollen those pollen baskets off and you can collect this beautiful pollen it's lovely it's often used as a garnish on on cakes and and the like but interestingly a lot of bodybuilders are using it especially vegan bodybuilders will use it as a protein as a protein because the pollen is very very high protein Mm -hmm. So they'll use that as a supplement um, for their for their their fitness. Yeah, it's it's amazing too. That I also reading here that bees visit some two million flowers <coughs> just to make five hundred grams of honey. That's yeah. a lot of work. That is about right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a huge amount of work to make. It depends on the plant. In Australia, in that we have some very very productive plants. Mm-hmm. So and you'll see them around here. So the yellow box and red box trees are justifiably famous. Mm-hmm. They produce a high volume of honey, and it's very high quality. Clistamons, so the bottle brush, mm-hmm. another fantastic high volume production, and a beautiful sweet clear honey. So it's quite a quite a light coloured honey, and that's one of the nice things that people are sort of realising now. There is no such thing as just honey. So people used to just buy supermarket honey. It was all just a blend of whatever they could get. Now you're seeing people are becoming a lot more discerning. They would want... My personal favourite is ironbark honey. I love it. It's it's really good. Not for everyone. The other fun one, especially if you're cooking and baking, uh, buckwheat honey mm. um, is really nice. It's quite strongly flavoured, but for cooking, it puts a yeah. beautiful aroma, like a nutty almost aroma through of honey nut through things. Banksia honey the yeah. other day. Yeah. Very strong. Yeah. It's very strong. We For World Bee Day um, a few years ago, we, we had some specialty honeys come in, and Desert Banksia was one of them. Magnificent. Mm. The other really weird one was mangrove honey, because mm. mangroves flower, and the bees will, will collect off off mangroves and someone had produced some mangrove honey and it was salty mm. it was really really interesting it was like this this strange so, sweet and salty 
flavor to it. It was amazing. And the Malaysian ambassador, for she gave us some of the deep forest honey, so Apis dorsata, which is a giant honeybee. Mm. <clears throat> they produce honey in the deep forests of Malaysia. Really different. It's mm. really, it almost tastes slightly fermented, mm. but a very dark but quite runny honey. Mm. Amazing flavor. Um, the first time you taste it because it looks like honey and you put it on your tongue and you go, oh, that's, that's not quite right. Not what you expect. Not what you expect yeah. at all. But then after a while, it's really beautiful. That is amazing. There was an experiment um, a beekeeper did in Europe where he set up a night camera because his um, hives were getting raided by black bears. And I believe that um, he set up a table for the bears with different types of honey to see if the bears had a preference. And they all went for the most expensive honey, the one that's something like $1,000 a pound. Yes, they all knew which yes, one it was. exactly. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, animals are very discerning about this. Um, and actually, one of the reasons... One, one little anecdote, the reason we wear white suits in beekeeping is because <clears throat> for honeybees, their main enemy is the bear. So they react to dark colours and sudden movements. And if you act like a bear and open the hive like a bear, they're going to think you're a bear. So we try and be as unbear-like as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. So we wear white because they don't react to the, the, yeah. the light colours. But African beekeepers, because their bees are exponentially more, more defensive mm. than ours, they wear black suits or dark, dark brown suits because they do beekeeping at night. Mm. So instead of opening the hives yeah, in, in the daytime like we do, they actually deliberately try and hide from the bees. Mm. They use red torches because bees can't see into mm. the red mm. spectrum. And, uh, and they, they wear dark suits mm. to essentially hide from their bees and they open them at night. That's incredible. So if you want to transport bees, it's something you have to do at night, I understand, right? Absolutely. For honeybees, it's kind of nice. And also for, for native stingless bees mm -hmm. that I've, I've moved, recently had to move the bees because Parliament was going into lockdown, mm -hmm. had to move the bees to their winter lodgings because native stingless bees can't, um, can't actually survive <laughs> Canberra winters. So we moved them up to New South Wales Government House, the New South Wales Governor, mm -hmm. very kindly let us use uh, government house overlooking the opera house yes. as the winter lodgings. They, they, they live better than we do in many <laughs> cases. But yeah, for, for bees, and there's also another trick. You move them at night, but also rule of thumb for bees because they've got an amazing homing system to find their hive again. You can move a hive one metre or 10 kilometres in a day. So either one metre, a little hop. If you've got to move at a small amount in the garden, you move it one metre every few days. But for a big move, you actually have to move them 10 kilometres away. Because if you don't, if you move the hive a kilometre away, the bees all come back to where they think home is. You get a whole bunch of very confused and upset bees. So, yeah, you seal at night and you move. So <clears throat> one of the reasons beekeeping, there's, there's sort of a shortage of beekeepers. It is hard physical labour. It's heavy lifting. There are stings, but the stings aren't the main, the main mm -hmm. deal. It's the fact that you are, you are moving hundreds of heavy boxes in the in pitch pitch dark darkness yeah it's so you do it for love you do do it a little bit for love it it um it's an agri like any agricultural pursuit <laughs> you do do it for mostly for your own enjoyment um and occasionally if you're lucky you can make some money out of it yeah and i've also heard that they've been um doing some experiments <coughs> with bees where they've discovered that they can forecast the weather and they actually plan their work day yes and one of the rules of beekeeping is it's a really bad idea to open the hive if there's rain on the way. They know. They absolutely know. They, they can somehow sense this. Um, you'll certainly see it if there's a sudden change in the weather. All the foragers come screaming back home. 
mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny if there's a sudden cool change comes through and the rain's on the way the bees they're out in the field and we don't we don't quite understand how they they do that because an individual bee doesn't really have enough brain power to to sort of predict the weather and yet there's some cue they can pick up on um, mm. and they they all come racing home and they all take shelter that is incredible. So, you know, with the sort of <clears throat> threats to our bees that we have at the moment, you know, with especially with pesticides and just, you know, climate change and lots of things that mm. are affecting, you know, the bees' preferences, yeah. um, what, what sort of situation are we in with that? Like, how can we address that? There's, there's a couple of things in the United States is, is where probably things are the worst because they have the most intensive industrialised style of agriculture. They are losing, you know, between 40 and in some areas 60% of their hives every year. Now, they can split those, those the, the surviving hives, they can split them and make new hives in, the, in their spring. But the general rule of thumb is it's believed that if you, you've got to have a loss rate, a winter loss rate, less than 20% to be sustainable. So there's, they're, they're hanging on. And in a lot of cases, they're, they're importing bees. Mm. So there are some beekeepers in Australia that all they do is make bees for, for export. And unfortunately, I, it's a bit sad. Those bees ne- can never return. Mm. We have a very strong biosecurity system in Australia. You cannot re-import live bees at all. You can, there's a special facility to bring new queen bees in for the genetics, but that's mm. it. So it's a one-way ride. And they go to the United States, and generally, most of them, they die. They're used in almond pollination, and it's a pretty brutal business. Mm. Um, the, the the almond growers will pay a lot of money for, for the bees to be there because they have to have bees. Almonds are what's called an obligate pollinator mm. for honey, honeybees, so they have to have honeybees and only honeybees to pollinate them. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty awful, and we're losing a lot of, of native bees as well. So all of the endangered bee species that are listed, they're all native bees, particularly in places like Hawaii and other, other areas. And it's, it's us, you know, it's, it's habitat loss. It's, it's clearing of native vegetation that reduces the diversity of food supplies. It's pesticides, especially systemic pesticides, which are put in seed coatings and then they permeate the whole plant. And they've been found, they've now been banned in the European Union, mainly because their impacts on pollinators. Yeah. It was found that they were having such a deleterious impact on bees mm. um, but in terms of what we can do camera is a really good example uh, the ACD government generally doesn't use a lot of sprays it uses it quite judiciously and that's great only around the perimeters of the playgrounds where the kids play yeah. <laughs> exactly so yeah it's, it's a little bit of a shame but generally the they, they do try and minimize it the other one that so parliament's a great example the Parliament gardeners don't use basically don't use any pesticides at all. They use a system called integrated pest management. Oh, are these your mini monsters? That the mini monsters, yes. yeah. I was going to ask you about those. Yeah, yeah, there's someone who, and her whole job is growing mini monsters yeah. that, that eat the pests. Yeah. And she's got a greenhouse that basically has, and she keeps a stock of, <laughs> of miniature monsters. Mm-hmm. And every and she checks the gardens, and the, all the gardeners all know what to recognise. They'll say, hey, we've got aphids. You get, great, mm-hmm. I've got something for that. Um, it's it's your you know classic aphid eaters. It's your ladybugs. It's your um, uh, things like the praying mantis, and so she releases them through the gardens to control that. And so it means that it's great because there's about 30 hectares of, of gardens, which people don't realise is a lot of lot of plants at Parliament, and 30 hectares you can produce some some really nice honey out of that. And we have, um, I think we won silver a couple of years ago at the at the Royal Canberra Show, so you know we've done pretty well. 
And if, say, um, an urban gardener wanted to make sure that they weren't doing anything to harm their bees in their own backyard, um, what sort of things should they be avoiding? Because I know there's some things that look benign, but they're actually not. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the main thing is put away the spray bottle. For an urban gardener, you don't really need it. Um, the other nice thing you can do is just grow flowers and try and have flowers all year round. And especially things that both native and honeybees like, like lavenders mm. and nepteia, so the, the cat mints and catnips, mm. um, bee, uh, lemon balm, which its original name by the Romans was bee balm because bees just love it. That's really popular. And generally, especially in spring, don't kill the dandelions. Mm-hmm. That's the one nice thing you can do. It, yes, I know that makes you know your lawn look a little bit messier, but I really have less lawn and have more flowers. And that's that's what I've got in my my house. My my only lawn these days is is native grass because I'm I'm a bit of a, a plant nerd, so that's my <laughs> thing. <clears throat> but um, yeah, you can actually do a lot in your home garden. The one thing that we need to to look at in terms of advocacy is a lot of, especially in the the garden stores, a lot of the plants are treated with something called neonicotinoids. Mm. So these are a a class of insecticides that, like I said, they're a seed coating that permeates the plant. Is this the same thing as neonics? (coughs) Yeah, Yeah. neonics. So they they mimic the the nicotine plant's defences, which is a a very powerful neurotoxin for for all insects. Mm. Very, very effective. And they incorporate into the plant and become part of the plant for its entire life cycle. What a lot of people don't realise is when they're spraying um, uh, imalcoprid or other other neonics, this (laughs) class of compounds, it stays in the soil for up to seven years. And all the plants growing in that soil become essentially poison to bees. So we don't support the use of these, obviously. What it means is it's a bit of a, a bit of a death trap um, in some ways because the plants look perfect mm. because nothing eats them, nothing chews on them, and that's why they're used a lot in the nursery industry because it means that you, when you put your plants in Bunnings and elsewhere mm. that they actually have um, they look really, really perfect. <clears throat> Bunnings realise this, and Bunnings have actually phased out neonics mm. out of their, their, their stores, but... It's really hard when we're talking to them. It's really hard to figure out which nurseries are still using mm-hmm. neonics, which partly that's record keeping and partly that's nurseries wanting to, to, it's to have sort of perfect looking plants. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that I would urge people, be a bit more tolerant of, of plants that don't look 100% perfect because that's something we need to work with the suppliers. Mm-hmm. Um, don't, don't, be, don't be scared if a plant <clears throat> has a few holes in its leaves. Um, it's not necessarily a bad mm. thing. Learn to recognise when a plant's healthy and when mm. it's productive. So if it's yeah. got holes in its leaves, something's <clears throat> obviously enjoyed eating it. Exactly. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a, a, a good good feast. It's, it's not going to be eat. poisoning. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a good gauge because <laughs> plants that are weak will be eaten more than plants that are strong. <clears throat> so one of the things you can do as a home gardener, if you're finding that, that your plants are being eaten, don't worry. Don't look so much at the plant. Look in the soil. Dig in the soil. Check your pH levels. Check how much organic matter is in the soil. That's usually, if a plant's being eaten, it's because it can't defend itself because it's actually weak from the soil. So a lot of, a lot of gardening problems start and finish with the soil. Mm. If we you got grow, rid of our bronze orange bugs by <coughs> watering the lemon tree more. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yep. You know, the plants have their natural defences. <clears throat> and what you can do is, uh, we often say a lot of, it's, this is in forestry as well, you're growing soil. You, you grow soil and then the plants grow themselves. Um, so when we're using broadacre, 
broadacre agriculture, and we're, we're doing a lot of these spraying, and mm. and some of the uh, some of the fertilisers are also not real good for the for the soil life. I mean, it, it seems <coughs> like we're we're basically doing broadacre hydroponics using the <laughs> sterilised dirt as the medium, and what does that do for? Or things like bees and, and humans even that are that are relying on a healthy living soil to, to get what they need. It's it's bad. It's bad for the whole environment. And it's not just it's not just bees. It's all of these nat- native pollinators. So one of the one of the big questions we've had in the last year or so is what's happening to the burgong moths. Now the burgong moths, as part of their life cycle, they pupate in cropland. This cropland has most likely been sprayed extensively. So we've seen a 99% decline in Bogo moths. So that in the cropland, they wouldn't perceive that as being a problem. But when you get up into the alpine areas, Bogo moths were a major food source for indigenous people, but they're also a critical food source for a whole bunch of uh, animals, such as the, the mountain pygmy possum and birds. And, and they're also an important pollinator. So they pollinate at night, whereas bees pollinate during the day. Mm-hmm. There is an alternative, and there's a really good report put out by the um, International Panel on Climate Change, and it was a brilliant report. It's really different to their other ones. It was on agriculture and how do we do agriculture. There's a real movement coming uh, that's moving through agriculture these days called regenerative agriculture, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, again, it's all around soil. It's around using a whole different set of plantings and, and sowing methods to a lot of what's called cover crops, but a lot of the cover crops are flowering, so they're allowed to flower, they feed bees, they feed other insects, beneficial insects, and then they are ploughed in to improve the soil. And there's been a dairy farmer who's actually run it at a profit, a, a very considerable profit, because what happens is the soil becomes higher in organic matter, it can hold more water, so it becomes a lot more drought-proof. It doesn't have bare soil, so you don't have as much evaporation and wind erosion because that's one of the real killers in Australia at the moment is wind erosion. We've had a lot of wind erosion. Um, those That dust, everyone sort of went, oh, you know, my car's dirty. For those of us who work in agriculture, we go, that's our topsoil. Our topsoil just headed out to New Zealand. New Zealanders don't need our topsoil. We need it here. So keeping the crops covered and also moving to what's what, what Parliament's been doing, which is... and and increasingly a city government's been doing which is something called integrated pest management so it's it's not completely removing sprays but it's using sprays that aren't persistent in the landscape and it's intervening when you need to so instead of waiting seeing a pest and going oh there's a bug on my on my plants get it let's just spray everything it's is it actually a problem you know looking understanding the ecology if you allow some bugs to develop but not too much and don't intervene, then you'll often find birds will turn up or other predatory insects will turn up and and solve the problem for you. Um, Chemical companies don't like that system as much because you're using a lot less chemicals. So their sales, and also their sales, to be fair on the chemical companies, their sales become very uncertain because it becomes very bumpy because farmers will only be using it when they need it um, and using less. So look, I get there's a commercial imperative there, but I don't really care. It's, it's a better way of producing, and it certainly allows a much more um, cohesive and a lot more biodiversity to persist in the landscape. So I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, they're doing things like, I think, having goats grazing <coughs> along the shores of Lake Burley Griffin for weed control. And yeah. And, and it's it, a really wonderful alternative um, approaches. And it works better. Yeah. Because especially for things like uh, blackberries, blackberries are now, unfortunately, resistant to most pesticides, uh, most herbicides. 
but they're not resistant to goats. Nothing stops a goat. So <laughs> they actually work really well. They, they, they remove the biomass, but they, they don't remove the other plants that then choke out the blackberries. So it's a much better result. So yeah, the, the go I love seeing that herd of goats. They're yeah. they working all around the, the black margin. Yeah. <clears throat> you can, yeah, we've used them even for fire, fire protection in some mm. cases as well, because yeah. they're very, very effective. I mean, they are a pretty enthusiastic grazer, <laughs> so you have to be careful where you use them. But just manage them. Yeah. You do have to manage them, yeah. but there's actually, you know, it's a job. People yeah. actually are goat herders and they set up temporary fences and move them into an area where the weeds are and the weeds just get annihilated. It's fantastic. And you get cute goats, so yeah. it's kind of nice. <laughs> Brilliant. So speaking of uh, fire management, how did the catastrophic bushfires we just had over the summer impact the bee population and how do bushfires in general impact bees? Uh, they hit bees in a couple of ways. Directly, we've lost several thousand hives mm. and that's, that's a big problem. That's a really big problem for agriculture because those hives... <clears throat> we need more hives. We actually had an undersupply before the fires. We've now lost several thousand hives. Um, so that's that's a big problem. The second big problem is the fires have reduced uh, forage. So, so much of the landscape is burnt, so much more than we've ever had burnt before. So these, these were the, the most significant, they were the, the largest area burnt mm -hmm. in the East Coast in recorded history by, by a considerable margin, not by a little bit. I think it's around about 5 million hectares, mm. perhaps more. So that's the high quality forage for native bee species, which do about half of our pollination come from mm. native species and about half comes from supplementary pollination from honeybees. The honeybees need those forests to recover um, after doing crop pollination because crop pollination, they're just eating one thing. Mm. It's like if we sat down and just ate McDonald's every day for months, not a problem as long as you then go and do, eat something else um, and have a more diverse um, thing. Well, we actually had a mate who did that when we were teenagers <clears throat> and he got crook and he went to the doctor and the doctor took ages to figure it out and then he got scurvy. <laughs> he actually scurvy. got scurvy, yeah. Vitamin like, C deficiency. Scurvy, yeah. yeah, well, the doctors hadn't seen it before because <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen, no. Not, not since not the 18th in, century. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Eat an orange, yeah. So yeah. It's, it, that's basically the same thing. So... Yeah. So that's the third. That's the second bit. Mm. the The other one in Canberra that really hit our colonies hard mm. was the smoke. Mm. I was going to ask um, about that. So one of the researchers for CSIRO, she was telling me mm. they had marked eight hundred newly emerged bees as part of a research project they, by hand. So they painted the baby bees, and when they came back two weeks later to see how many of those bees were still foraging, they had twenty left. So that's a sort of magnitude of loss now. Big strong colonies like like native like sorry like honeybees can persist through that. It takes a big hit. We saw that on the parliament hives and my other hives on rooftops and the like. They took quite a, a beating, but because they've got this big honey store, they can they can push through that. Native bees generally don't have these big reserves, so native bees are the unknown because we're generally not monitoring to the same degree. Uh, we don't know what's happened to them. They've had most of their habitat burnt, so we're, we're pretty concerned. Mm. And there was one on Kangaroo Island, there was actually a, a type of bee, a metallic green um, bee, which is beautiful. It's mm. beautiful emerald green bee that had been moved there as a, and they had a, a species recovery plan as part of it. Their habitat was all burnt. Mm. I get, I gather some of it has been recovered, so they, they're not completely gone, but 
there's a lot of our native pollinators that um, that really matter. Mm. And the important thing about native pollinators is they're often matched to, there's two types of pollinators. There's a specific pollinator and a generic pollinator. So mm. honeybees are what's called a generic pollinator. And for agriculture, mm. that's what you want. Mm. They can work on a whole range of flowers. They're not particularly, they don't have what's called, um, they're not very picky about what they eat, mm. but honeybees have a particular... Sort of omnivorous bees. They're omnivorous bees. That's yeah. what you want. Um, whereas a lot of the native pollinators are very specific. They will pollinate just one or a, c- a certain group of plants. And for that group of plants, if you lose the bees, you lose the plants because the plants mm-hmm. can't breed anymore. They need the bees mm-hmm. in order to basically to have sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't do it without the bees. Mm-hmm. So the native pollinators become super important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, if you lose them, you often lose a whole cluster of plants mm-hmm. that are just as important. And then all the, all the other animals relying on that plant would be also lost mm. and so, us ultimately. and us ultimately yeah, us yeah. i mean this is the the great thing we, mm. we think we're big and tough and mm-hmm. able to do it but actually mm. a large chunk of our food supply relies on mm. bugs in a box mm. top of the food chains mm. first of all really. that's yeah. it mm-hmm. pretty much it we it's really important that we recover both the native and the and the um, the pollination bee supplies. Yeah, there was a lovely um, installation in one of the zoos in the US in the 1920s, and it had a sign that said the most dangerous animal in the world, and it was a mirror. <laughs> so you know, it speaks we, for itself. Yeah, we are the deadliest species out there for sure, yeah. by a long shot. Yeah. yeah. So for people that maybe aren't familiar with native bees, you know, I know that um, a lot of people maybe hadn't realised they'd seen a native bee because they don't look traditionally like what we expect with a honeybee. Mm. What, what what do they look like? I know they're a lot smaller, right? And they they range. They're enormous. Some of them are bigger. Some of them are smaller. Mm. The main thing is they're colourful. Mm. So they're really colourful. The, the one thing people would have seen in their gardens a lot, especially if you grow tomatoes, is something called a blue-banded bee. Mm. So it looks a bit like a honeybee, but it moves much faster. It's a much faster flyer. And it does something called buzz pollination. So bees, um, when they pollinate, they pollinate by the, the, the pollen basically sticks to the bee through static electricity. But buzz pollinators are different. They actually shake, they headbang against the flowers mm-hmm. At a, cert, at a really high rate. It's my sort of bee. Exactly. <laughs> they, they headbang the flowers to shake the pollen out. And the, the, the plants, tomatoes, for instance, won't release their pollen unless they're headbanged against them in, in the pitch of sea. So they actually, the, the, the plants know that, no, no, the wind doesn't count. It has to be a particular type of headbanger. That, uh, and the blue-banded blue bee is one of those. So they normally pollinate something called Dianella, which is the flax lily, which is really popular. A lot of people have that in their garden, and that's their natural. But the flowers, if you look at them, look quite similar to tomato flowers. Mm. So if you have tomatoes, they've been pollinated, but generally... Honeybees are rubbish at um, at pollinating tomatoes. Mm. You have to have native bees. You have to have um, the the other one that pollinates tomatoes quite well is something called a, a teddy bear bee, and it's adorable. It looks like a bee, but it's just in teddy bear form. It's got it's got it's fluffy. It's really fluffy. And is that which, a, a small bee or is it a no, larger it's about, bee? No, it's about the same size as a honeybee. Um, what you will see, though, is they're what's called a mason bee. Mm. So they actually burrow into uh, masonry and, and they live in soil, but they're actually able to eat through rock if they, to make their nests. They're kind of cool. The other ones you'll see around here. Do they here, get through it by banging it with their head? No, they chew. <laughs> oh, they chew. Really yeah, unfortunately. I think, I'm pretty sure there's some banging involved, but they, <laughs> they mostly have these super, super tough jaws that yeah. can literally chew through rock. That's astounding. They're pretty yeah. cool. 
Um, and the other fun one is it's a it's a bit of a sneaky sneaky bee, but it's beautiful. It's called the neon cuckoo bee. And it's a nest parasite. So the reason it's called a cuckoo bee is it actually sneaks into the nests of blue-banded bees and lays its eggs in their nests. Um, but does it turf out the blue-banded bees' eggs? Or does uh, it- no, it actually, their, their larvae eat the blue-banded bees' oh, eggs, we think. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely not, not the nicest creature, but stunningly beautiful. So it's, it's called a neon blue um, cuckoo bee for a reason. You'll, mm. you, unmistakable. It looks a little bit like a wasp, but it's actually a bee. But it's bright blue, like bright, bright neon blue. <laughs> and people often will send send me photos saying, "This is amazing. What is this?" I'm like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The other one you'll see sometimes that's blue is really big. It's a really big, big mm. wasp. It's called a tra- It's called a, a hawk wasp. Um, and it's a it's a blue or a blue flower wasp. And it has this iridescent blue um, color to it, and it's amazing. It's quite a large creature. It um, it specifically kills spiders, mm. so it's a spider eater. Is it the one that kills the spiders and then lays the eggs in the spider's body? That's the one. Yeah, okay. that's, there's a few of those. We've yeah. got quite a few. Um, a few of the ones that paralyze the spiders. Yeah. We don't have the we don't have the zombie wasp, the zombie mm. spider wasp, which is the coolest wasp. I think just about <laughs> that it's moves in cool North name. America. It's yeah. got a cool name. It actually turns the um, it turns the sp- uh, turns a cockroach into a zombie. Um, it actually stings it in a particular part of the brain that the cockroach no longer has free will, but it can still move and walk, and it actually rides it using the antenna to steer. Oh. It's, there's a YouTube videos of this. It's steering. It's, it's got a zombie ride. It basically turns it into a zombie mount and rides it back to the, to the nest and then paralyzes it completely and puts an egg where it gets eaten alive by the wasp's larvae. So horrifying. You've you um, got to admire evolution. You've got right? to admire it, though. Like yeah. like turning a cockroach into a zombie mount is, is pretty awesome. Mm. Yeah, why not? So there's got to be a horror movie in there somewhere. <clears throat> Someone's got to come up with that script. Oh, well, there was. Uh, the Cordyceps, the, um, the Last of Us, which is a video game. <laughs> yeah. um, fantastic game. But that was based around, you know, what if one of the, one of the uh, Cordyceps fungi, which infects ants normally, but also bees, um, what if that was able to do it to us? Because the cordyceps <laughs> takes over the brain of right. the host and makes the host move to a high high area and then um, spreads the spores. So yeah. actually, again, the, the cordyceps fungi turns ants into sort of zombie ants. <laughs> Um, yeah, pretty yeah. horrifying. Attenborough's done a few on that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, you, you've been having bees up at Parliament House, you know, which is the house of democracy. Now, <laughs> bees have got some pretty major decisions to make as well because, you know, when the hive gets too full, they need to find another spot mm-hmm. for the half of the bees to go to. Yeah. How do bees actually make that decision? It's some sort of... Uh, it, almost a democracy, isn't it? It is actually a democracy. There's, there's a, it's, they vote. Bees, bees vote on major decisions for the hive. It's a really cool system. So someone, a, a researcher called Dr. Thomas Seeley, he figured out how many bees it takes. They have what's called a first... They have basically a first-past-the-post voting system. So they'll go out and try and find a, a new home, and they count... They, bees can count, and this is the one thing that we, we still haven't figured out how they manage to do this. They can count quite well. So they know roughly how many bees are in the hive, so they know when they're getting too full. They can also count quite accurately. They can measure um, areas. So they pace it out, and they know when an area is above a certain volume, which means that it can be a a home. So the scouts go out, and they measure it out by pacing out in a certain pattern, and you can can watch them 
pace it out. And we watch for this as beekeepers because we can put a scent attractant to bring the scouts into a, what's called a, a catch box. And we see the scouts going in and out. We go, oh, goody, all right, swarm's about to roll in. They measure it out, they go back, and they, they dance. So bees communicate in the hive by dancing. And they say, I found a great spot. Here's the direction, go check it out. When you've got 27 bees dancing to say, I found the spot, it's the best spot, this is a different one. And at the same time, there's other dancers. So it's actually a dance-off. <laughs> it's, a, it's a waggle dance dance-off. And they, they, they dance to say, this is the best one. Once there's above 20, about 27, and, and it, there's also there's some wiggle room there if they if they really need to find a spot if there's bad weather on the way they'll they'll accept they'll go with whoever's got the most votes but mm -hmm. generally once you've got 27 dancers and this is important for us for swarm collection because every spring and into summer people call ACDB and beekeepers and they'll say look I found a swarm it's mm -hmm. in my yard and there's you know there's a cluster of bees mm -hmm. on my rose bush. And it's important to call a beekeeper then because we've while they're choosing a spot, we can shortcut that. We can mm -hmm. say, we've got a better idea. Everyone get in this box. Yeah. And we actually put them in the box. And once they're in the box, they're happy. They go, great, this will do. So we're when they're swarming, are they actually just resting between Yeah, decisions? they're resting. So the, yeah. the queen is relatively large <laughs> and she can't fly more than about sort of four to 700 metres in a single hop. Mm -hmm. So they'll do a hop and, and rest and try and find a new spot and if that doesn't work then they'll move on and they'll find another spot and rest there as sort of a staging area while the while the scouts go out mm. so while they're in that swarm mode they're looking for a home and we try and find that and it's it's actually really important because like i said honeybees they're not a native species so if they move into a tree hollow that's a tree hollow mm. that a native native animal can't use that's a nesting hollow for native birds that's not available anymore. And we do sometimes remove them from hollows and we remove them from nest boxes. So one of my colleagues, Dermot Ashenon, who's the current president of Canberra Region Beekeepers, one of his jobs is ACD government will say, you know, we've had 30 nest boxes throughout Canberra taken over by bees. Can you, here they are, can you grab them, remove the bees, please? So we have that service to ACD government to remove those bees from nest boxes. But something beekeepers can do is to control swarming. Mm. And you do that by um, inspecting your bees. And when you see that they want to swarm, they start making baby queens. Mm. That's your sign that you need to split and make two hives, which is great, you know, if you don't want so the hive. So they're basically overcrowded. Is they're the, overcrowded, yeah. Or yeah. yeah. the condition is, or the conditions are really good, mm -hmm. or a slightly older queen. Mm. So there's a whole series of decisions they go through to make whether to swarm or not. But mm. like you said, yeah, when they when they it sort of fits nicely that we've got bees at Parliament mm -hmm. because they actually vote on major decisions. <laughs> mm. And do you reckon there's anything that we could <clears throat> learn from this decision-making process? I mean, uh, one one joke I sometimes make is they will sometimes vote to remove the leader, to remove the queen. Now, it, it's misnomer to call the queen the leader. One of the fascinating things about bees is no one's in charge. No single bee makes the decisions. It's actually a completely democratic <coughs> Bloody anarchists. Society. Yeah, they are. They're yeah. anarchists, complete anarchists, but it somehow works. Um, no one's in charge, but everyone does their job. But when they decide, if the queen's not cutting it, they will sometimes decide to replace her. And the colony will, will replace her by um, removing her. They'll either throw her out the front, they'll throw her out the front door after um, chewing her wings off, which is a bit cruel, mm. Or they'll ball her, which is when they actually cluster all around the queen and cook her through heat. So that's one of the ways that they um, 
they remove a queen, and mm. so that's that's one thing. There's no there's no backbench for ex leaders. Yeah. Uh, once they well, we might need to implement that in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. It seems a bit harsh to me, but yeah. um, you never know. But yeah, I think the one thing that I try and take from from bees is everything they make has more than one purpose. They don't make a single use product for anything. The honey is also insulation. Um, the propolis is also gap filler as well as a medicine mm -hmm. cabinet. So everything they do has more than one function. And also they recycle 100% of everything. There's mm -hmm. nothing goes to waste in a beehive. There are never any waste products that they just get rid of. Um, everything is, and they have insects that live with them mm -hmm. called wax moth that do the recycling. They have their yeah. own garbage, yeah. they have their own garbage men basically. Yeah. So, so the very species we should be looking to are the, are the species that we've been devastating, which is yeah, pretty yeah. much. It's um, bees have been with us as as a, a big part mm -hmm. of our success as a species because agriculture mm -hmm. is is the, basically what what has allowed mm -hmm. humans to flourish. Mm -hmm. They've been a critical part of agriculture mm -hmm. since the ancient Egyptians figured out mm -hmm. they were important and started mm -hmm. doing migratory beekeeping. So, yeah. they've always been with us, and they've been the reason that we can survive as a as a, a big organized city society mm -hmm. is because we can produce food so efficiently so yeah. it's really important yeah we've got some great ideas um coming up now on how we can do a bit more of that um so joining the conversation now we're going to have jonathan palmer who's um an urban beekeeper and the founder of the hall honeys at hall heritage village in the act so um in response to support for bees the hall honeys have actually been uh, working on a number of initiatives to make Hall especially bee-friendly. They've joined forces with ACT for Bees to develop a bee-friendly charter, outlining what needs to be done to make Hall Village a hospitable and welcoming environment for bees and other pollinators. With a completion date of 2020, uh, this December, the project proposes to implement public plantings and signage in the centre of Hall to provide additional habitat and promote awareness of the vital role that bees play and encourage behaviours that will promote bee health as well as enhance the heritage character of Hall Village. Uh, Jonathan Palmer is a former Deputy Australian Statistician and Chief Operating Officer at the Australian Bureau of Statistics and a Chief Information Officer for the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., who now prefers to spend as little time in office buildings as possible. Um, and he's a very passionate uh, amateur beekeeper. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Oh, thanks, Lena. And hi, Cormac. G'day, mate. How are Pleasure you? Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, really good. And I, I just, every time I listen to you, Cormac, I learn so much. So <laughs> thank you very much. I don't know. You've worked at the IMF. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> we need bees running the global economy, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think bees could run everything. So, um, Jonathan, who actually are the Hall Honeys? Could you tell us a little bit about them? Well, Zena, we're, uh, we're an informal group. At the core, there's about a dozen of us, but, but there's a much larger group in Hall that are supporting us. Uh, and we came together a couple of years ago. Uh, the, the, I guess the start was the fact that a few of us are amateur urban beekeepers and we were looking to help each other and exchange knowledge. But we realised that our interest was much broader than that. We really were interested in pollinator health and creating a, a bee-friendly environment. And when we talked about a bee-friendly environment, we said, well, hang on, it's not just European bees, it's native bees and, in fact, it's pollinators in general. Um, so, so it's a group of a group of us here in Hall that have decided to work together to promote the health of pollinators. And we came up with the idea of, of making Hall possibly Australia's first bee-friendly village. And we decided we'd 
do that in a way that might might provide a bit of a blueprint for other communities that want to do the same. Oh, that's amazing. So um, what are some of the goals that you're trying to achieve um, through this right now? Uh, well, we've developed... Uh, we're, the first thing we, we realised was we didn't, we didn't have a blueprint to follow ourselves. So we thought, well, let's develop a, a charter for a bee-friendly community. So we worked with Act for Bees on that. And it's a pretty simple little, little charter. It, it says to be a bee-friendly community, you, you've got to promote appropriate habitat. You've got to have the right behaviours around um, pesticide and insecticide use. You've got to inform and engage your community about the importance of pollinators um, and you've got to work together for the health of pollinators. So you can find our charter on our, on our Facebook page, Be Friendly Hall Village. Um, so to implement that, we, we thought, well, let's, let's start with the planting. And we decided to help people that have bee-friendly gardens in Hall. Now, if you've been out to Hall, it's about 100 houses, many of them on quite large blocks with diverse plantings. Um, so with the sponsorship of Hall Rotary, a fantastic little club, we, um, we offered every household in Hall the opportunity to take home a native bee hotel, um, five native plants to sort of vary the diversity of their, of their plants in their garden, uh, a little guide from Act for Bees around bee-friendly gardening and a bee-friendly garden sign. So that was our first project and we... It was fantastic. We had a big sausage sizzle and everyone came down and we now have 100 gardens registered and all of those people committed to doing the best they can to operate bee-friendly gardens. So that's our first, our first big project, thanks to Hall Rotary, and uh, we've got all those gardens now established around Hall. But, so the next step is really to work more on the public spaces and to improve the, the habitat in those. Hmm. So there's a possibility, it sounds like, that you might be able to get um, some Floriard bulbs for the public space. Is that uh, an idea that you guys have going right now? It sure is. We jump on anything like that. So when we, <laughs> when we heard a few days ago that Floriard Reimagined involved uh, distributing bulbs to community groups, we're, we're onto it. In fact, the whole Honeys are going to team up with uh, the whole Men's Shed, whole Rotary, the whole Traders and whole Land Care. <laughs> one of the nice things about all you've got all these great groups that like to work together and we're going to uh, put in our our bid with with ACT government for an allocation of bulbs and we'll we'll use I'll be interested in Cormac's views around whether these exotic bulbs are actually of much use to our pollinator um, population but they certainly look good and they'll attract people and we'll be able to tell them more about Bee Friendly Hall. Bulbs are great uh, bulbs produce a lot of uh, pollen and they pollen in in early spring, which is really important for a whole range of bee species. So, and the other nice thing about bulbs is they they generally are not invasive at all. So, they're quite a quite a safe planting to do, and they look lovely. But yeah, the bulbs are, are a really good option in terms of pollinator health because they do produce some quite nice pollen for the bees. Fabulous. And um, Jonathan, you mentioned that um, there was an initiative to uh, make or craft some wonderful bee hotels that um, every household that applied got a bee hotel. And you're also mm-hmm. doing follow-up on that. You're actually checking yep. in with people who are registered with the hotel, the bee hotel, and to see how things are going, to see whether any, any bees are using the hotels. Yeah, we're, we're like the Airbnb <laughs> bee hotel. <laughs> boom, boom, love it. Yeah, yeah, we will... We'll have to really build on that one, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, so the bee hotels we we made 
100 at our men's shed, and one of our men's shed members, Billy Pearson, he he's a he's a designer, so he he really relished the challenge. He started started looking at the ones you could buy in the shops, and then modified his design. He came up with this beautifully simple uh, hall B block, we call it. It's a block of reclothing hardwood with uh, with holes in it, variety of diameters, uh, all at least to a depth of, of um, 12 to 15 centimetres. Uh, and they've got a, a nice little jaunty little slanted roof on them that are painted in a beautiful palette of colours. Um, so we've got those out in 100 of the private gardens and more recently, with the support of ACT government, we got an adopt-a-park grant to build another 22, um, and we've put those out in one of our reserve spaces here. So that's out in the park there now. There's 22 of these lovely hotels out there, um, and they're they're all they're they're being occupied. Um, I took a photo of one outside our local post office a couple of days ago, and it was it had a few occupants. So. Um, as you said, we're 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 now um, starting to engage people in monitoring them. We want to turn it into a bit of a, a bee science effort, a citizen science effort. Um, and we did we did put out the call uh, a couple of weeks ago for people to participate in the in the big pollinator count that was happening um, between twelfth uh, to nineteenth of April. There was a wild pollinator count mm. program happening in Canberra. So. Yeah, we want we want people to we want to help people um, assemble some data about how much these hotels are being used, so we understand if our efforts are making a difference. Great, and I believe that Pollinet account is going to happen again um, sometime in spring. It's supposed to be, I think, this eighth to the fifteenth of November of this year. Yeah. So if you if you miss the yep. uh, April one, there's another one coming up in November. Yeah, that's great. And and one thing we're we're going to do, one thing we're trying to work out here is what positions work well. We start off telling people to put them between a metre and two metres up uh, with a somewhat northerly aspect, a bit of shelter. Um, and then we have some people come back and say, well, all, all my hotels that are actually um, hidden away a bit, um, much more sheltered than, than you suggested, seem to be getting more occupants. So it's going to be really interesting to see see how that works so we can give people a bit more insights into where where the hotels are working. Yeah, I actually have to say that I'm a very lucky uh, recipient of one of these hotels and why I had the hotel sitting out the front entrance of my place deciding where I was going to put it, it filled up. <laughs> so I thought, okay, that's where they want to be. Um, you know, I didn't even have to move it. And that was, again, an area that I wouldn't have suspected that would have appealed to the bees at all. Mm. Like basically well, by the front a, door underneath an alcove. You must be an Airbnb super host. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Got a good... Uh, Good uh, cleanliness ratio too, yeah. um, Jonathan. Um, these uh, these bee hotels that you're making they sound mm-hmm. pretty simple, is that right? Well, they are. They're, they're very simple in design. They're, they're a little bit tricky. They're, well, there's a bit of labour involved in making them. Drilling drilling all those holes is not easy to that depth. <laughs> you have to have to plug away at it. No pun intended. But um, <laughs> yeah, they are simple. And anyone, anyway, actually, we should we should publish a design, but. We're also thinking we've got a nice stockpile of reclaimed hardwood um, that was donated by Gordon Smith down the road, and we, we're thinking we might create a nice little line of bee hotels that we could sell through merchants here in the hall to fund maintenance of our bee-friendly gardens and promote bee-friendly halls. So, yeah, um, come, come on out and, and get one. Well, they're, they're not in the stores yet, but they will be, I think, in the next few months. Yeah, I was thinking of that because if you go north of, of Hall or in Canberra and, and anywhere out west, you'll find that the, the paddocks are all full of 
big, large old trees and very few saplings. And those old trees are what's required for for tree hollows and, and things like yeah. that because, you know, trees got to get to a certain age before it gets rotten. Um, and when, when this generation of old trees falls over, there's going to be a, a, a significant amount of decades where there's just a lack of suitable tree hollows for bees and for all the other animals. So this sounds like it could be a actually a feasible thing for farmers and other people to just do in the in the shed to uh, to at yes, least help I, the bees. I think um, Cormac made the point earlier that the native bees don't have a tremendous range. You know, it could be as little as 300 metres or up to half a kilometre or so. So I, I've got to say, when we first started, I, I, don't, I don't know much and I'm still learning. There's a lot to learn, but... I was thinking, oh, you know, all surrounded by wonderful habitat. Maybe, maybe there's no need for this. But, but when you when you wrap your mind around the fact that some might only fly a few hundred meters, you realise that there are, you know, there are patches where there's no habitat for the bees at all. So this reserve that we've put our hotels into, it's a fantastic sort of bridge, if you like, um, for bees that might want to get across the village. And so your point is, you know, if you've got large paddocks um, and the big tree goes, there's nothing there for them. So, absolutely right. We need to we need to get these things out there in in um, not just the urban environments, but everywhere. And you're a bit of a, a gardener, Jonathan. So I've got a question for you. Do you know, or perhaps Cormac could answer this, if bees have a colour preference for certain sorts of flowers? Because I have heard that they do like certain colours over others. So if you're choosing plantings, other than just you know being a, wanting to colour coordinate your garden, maybe you can do that with bees in mind? Well, they, um, I'm going to be very interested to hear Cormac's answer. I did a bit of research on this when we had our, our bee-friendly garden event because we thought, well, let's, not, let's offer plants that have the right colours. Um, but Cormac, what's the answer to that? Fantastic. <laughs> uh, so I was going to wait to see your answer. No, they do have a preference. Um, bees see mostly in the blue, yellow um, and violet spectrum. They also see ultraviolet. And if you go online, there's a few great um, great sites where people have taken photographs of flowers using an ultraviolet filter, so you can see the patterns that only bees normally see. Uh, but, yeah, basically the, they do. So if you see, as a general rule of thumb, and it's not hard and fast, if you see a red flower, it's mostly made for birds because birds see mostly into the red spectrum. If you see a blue, a yellow or pinks, um, uh, but but often uh, blue, blue and yellow um, flowers are generally uh, more more made for insect pollinators. That's not hard and fast though. Obviously, bottle brush is mostly red, and oh boy, you can't get the bees <laughs> off it. It's but that's because there's just so much nectar, and they can smell it um, a mile off. But yeah, that's generally they they totally do, um, and that's how plants sort of attract the right because what a flower is is an advertising sign. It's a big advertising sign saying, I've got stuff here, come get it. Um, help me help me pollinate the next flower. So they are advertising for a specific market in the same way that, you know, <laughs> we do. All right, I want, uh, I want the advertising companies to take note of this. <laughs> we want billboards to look like flowers from now on. <laughs> Some, people be doing that. <laughs> Some people have been actually turning their billboards into bee hotels, gigantic bee hotels. It's kind of awesome. Is that, that's in Canberra? Do you know no, that? no, that's overseas. That's overseas. Uh, there was a couple of um, a couple of companies that tried doing that as a bit of a fun gimmick, and it seemed to work pretty well. Well, they could that's start something. Idea. Yeah, wonderful. And so they see an ultraviolet comet, basically, and um, 
I was a bit dismayed because when, when we were looking at, when I looked at my garden through this sort of bee-friendly lens, I realised that most of my flowers were red. <laughs> this is true. And, uh, I mean, they, they will uh, still they will still sense it, um, and they're pretty good at finding food where wherever they need to. But yeah, generally, as a general rule, um, blue flowers are what you want. So, the the nice thing is though, native bees in particular, they're not they're not absolutely desperate to have native food. They don't really care that much. So certainly, all of the all of the native plants they will they'll have a pollinator will turn up, but. Lavenders, lavenders are lovely. Um, I've got heaps yeah. of lavender. Rosemary, rosemary is a really nice one too. Very popular with all all of the pollinators, um, and catnip and cat mint. So I grow a drug garden for my cats, um, basically. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the cat doesn't have to go to work in the morning. So what? You know, if it's high, it doesn't matter. So yeah, but the, all of the all of the cat drug plants are actually pretty um pretty pretty popular with with bees, but also sages, salvias. Mm. And I heard that you should also plant uh, these bee-friendly plants in clumps rather than single plants. Is that um, sort of because the bees don't want to move too far between the flowers? Yeah, they, they will generally go for a cluster of plants. It makes it more efficient for them to go back to that plant over and mm -hmm. over again. But any any flower will will attract bees. So, But you can actually, one of the other things you can do is if you have a plant that you really want the bees to visit, so like fruit trees, for instance, Putting something underneath it that attracts bees. So companion planting. Companion planting, great yeah. idea, and that's one of the basis of of companion planting is you're actually trying to bring the insect you want, whether it's a predator for the pests or a bee or a pollinator. Um, you're trying to bring that in to to your the target plant that you want for your food. So um, you mentioned something earlier that you need to look around your garden with the eyes of a bee, that um, trying to see what what what's necessary if a bee can't see any food in the garden it's not going to spend time in that garden pollinating yeah. anything i think the, the for me the key thing is um a continuous floral sequence you know have you always got have you always got something for the bees to uh forage on and you know we've all got garden well many of us have gardens that are lovely and abundant in spring but what about winter so that's, that I think for me is um, is the challenge with my garden is to look at it as a sort of year round feast and make sure that it's abundant year round. And we are very fortunate in Australia to have, in most parts of the country, maybe Canberra is the exception, to have a particularly um, lovely long summer and warmer climate. Uh, I lived in Canada for 25 years and we had about six weeks of summer. <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, yeah. wasn't, wasn't too many flowering plants. And if you were facing north, which is the mm. opposite of here, you know, facing north, nothing grew. So also other things you could do to um, make a, a bee-friendly garden would be making sure that during this hot weather, bees are able to get a drink without drowning. So how would you do that? Yeah. Uh, so again, uh, I'd, I'd recommend that people go to Act for Bees website. They've got a nice little brochure on bee-friendly garden gardening. But one key thing you've got to do is provide water. It was particularly important, you know, during our, our stocking drought and fire period not not long ago pre-camp pre-pandemic um and and i it's interesting and, and cormac i'll be interested in your feedback on this but bees aren't that fussy they're quite attracted to dirty puddles so you don't have to have beautiful continuous crystal clear flowing water you can just put out um in my case i've got some quite shallow bowls of water and i've put twigs in them so that the bees don't drown they can sit on the twigs and and drink um 
and uh, and the water is, isn't particularly clean, but they, they love it. And as far as I can see, they're, they're bothering uh, the people with the swimming pool next door a bit less <laughs> as a result. But and putting water at a few different heights and, um, and making sure that they don't drown by putting a few structures in there like twigs and rocks. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've got a fairly elaborate setup because again, I'm a sort of a gardening nerd. I've got a pond with a, like a little a little solar powered pump that produces a riffle of, of water that goes over pebbles, and the bees really like that. So that's, but um, you don't have to get all fancy like that. Just a bowl with pebbles in it. And the other great one is if you like champagne, which myself and my partner really do. <laughs> Um, just get a bucket or a, or a tub or even a, a shallow dish and fill it with water and just throw your champagne corks in there. Um, and yeah, the champagne corks work extremely well as as bee as bee uh, islands basically. They quite like them. And yeah, like you said, they're not fussy. You don't have to clean clean the water out particularly. Don't worry so much about that. They 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 quite like dirty water. They actually prefer dirty water. That's a great idea, Cormac. Everyone should go out and get a case of champagne and start a beer pond. Uh, exactly. a bee pond. You're doing it yeah. for the bees. Like it's, exactly. it's it's not the champagne per se. It's just a byproduct of, of you well, trying to save bees. Local distilleries, I think, that need a little bit of an economic boost. I think it's a it's a win win for everybody there. <laughs> yeah, well, they lost their they lost their vintage from the smoke. Yes. Right. Yes. But then they've ended up turning the alcohol into hand sanitizer. So yep. you know, they it's kind of it's a it's a weird circular economy we've created here. Yeah. There's there's magic and ethanol. <laughs> I think one of the nice things out of the pandemic is people have found their gardens again. You yeah. know, it's it's a one thing that and a lot of people are saying there's there's lots of stuff that we want to go back to when this is all over, but there's some stuff we want to keep. And I think mm. people like you said, um that's a brilliant point. Having flowers year round. Like have something flowering in your garden. Try and try and achieve that to have no gaps in the in the flowering. All, all year round and that'll produce just a beautiful it's a beautiful garden like this is a nice <laughs> thing even if no bees turn up you've got a beautiful garden mm-hmm. but bees will total, totally turn up um, mm-hmm. to, to a beautiful flowering garden mm-hmm. year round Zena, I probably should tick off all the boxes around a bee friendly garden just, just to yeah go ahead oh, yeah. Well, well I think we've, we've talked about water and we've talked about plants and you did touch earlier on the other really important element which is use of pesticides so that's that's really where people can make a difference. Be careful about the products that they use and how they use them. And you talked about um, neonics and uh, the fact that, um, you know, fortunately some big organisations like Bunnings are starting to stop selling that stuff. But really think think about how you control your pests and think about whether you actually need to. Uh, here in Hallwood, an interesting little dialogue going, people exchanging um, recipes for organic treatments that, that seem to be very effective. So that's a very healthy dialogue we've got going here uh, in a community that's probably been used to using things like Roundup a bit more than they need to. So, um, yeah, be careful about pest control. Mm. And I guess the biggest thing too, if you're buying plants to put in your garden, as Cormac was saying earlier, is that ask before you buy, like make yeah. sure the plants, you're sourcing the plants from somewhere that hasn't had this seed coated I think many people would be very surprised by that, that, that there are plants that have had this stuff bred into them to become toxic. Uh, it's, it's quite shocking, isn't it? So, yeah, look, look with care at the, before you buy your plant. Mm. And the other thing that we've talked about, you know, with the um, 
uh, COVID restrictions is that, yes, people are gardening more. It's a bit like being back in the 1980s again where everybody's out in their lawns and playing with their kids. But they've actually done lots of studies in saying that children who grow up with more green space um, in their childhood have been associated with lower risk of psychiatric disorders from adolescence into adulthood and that, you know, spending time in the garden has been proven to be um, psychologically beneficial for, um, oh. you know, raising raising your kids and, and yourself, I imagine, as well. That, so you're not only helping the bees, but you're, you're helping your community and your immediate immediate loved ones and property values that's one of yeah, the yeah. But this is actually a real thing like leafy leafy gardens and, and better more greenery the more greenery there's a direct linear relationship between um how much green you've got in the in the suburbs and property prices which is kind of funny people mm. it, people realize like either, either subconsciously or consciously they realize that it, it's it's better and healthier to live in a greener suburb and it's been one of the things driving mm. both the hall. Like hall is probably the best example. It's mm. just a beautiful village, gorgeous gardens. Mm. It's just a lovely place to live. Mm. And I think ACD government sort of taken notice of that mm. and gone, you know, they, they did go for the concrete dog boxes for a while there. Mm. And now the modern designs are moving back much mm. towards having people have at least a little bit of garden mm. and having good street trees, like mm. good quality, nice street trees to reduce the, the heat island effect, but also... Mm just a nicer environment. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's going back to Canberra's roots, right? The original planning of the city yeah. was very much about, you know, a green landscape, um, creating something unique that yeah, was, it was different. Yeah, it was a critical part of the, the concept design for the whole city was yeah. that it was going to be nestled in a forest. And we've we've mostly achieved that. Yeah. I think um, when I was checking, when I was doing the analysis a few years ago, we do have over 500,000 flowering trees in Canberra, um, which is fantastic yeah that is amazing it's also great to see in some of our more recent suburbs uh and i guess it's part of a feature of this modern design now cormac but you've got street verges that are devoted to native grasses you know so the the way those public spaces are being used um is is much better now with plantings that create um understories and oh 100 you know and it's driven by a whole range of things. It, the native grasses produce seed that then is eaten by parrots. So you, mm. one of the things when I converted my lawn to, to native grasses, suddenly all these parrots turned up. It was fantastic. But the other thing that's great about native grasses is they don't release pollen. So grass pollen is one of the really big allergens that, mm. that hit people really hard, especially ryegrass pollen is mm. quite dangerous. And native grasses do not release pollen at all. So they're more expensive to establish but once they're established, they require almost no maintenance and they don't release these allergens into the mm. community. So mm. there's definitely a changeover happening. Yeah. So the more we do for bees, the more we do for us, it sounds like. Yeah. So yeah, the more we think, uh, you know, if you've got a lot of birds in your garden, you're probably doing something right. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's it's a good except for Indian miners, right? <laughs> well, we, which we're trapping them out mostly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah they're, they're mostly they're, gone They're quite now. prolific in Hall, I understand. Oh, okay. yeah. but, well, we have traps for loan here in Hall, so just... Just give us a call at the men's shed and we'll help you okay, out with that. Fantastic. Local, local community's got a set of minor bird traps that you can borrow. Wonderful. So we're just um, about to wind up here. So I wanted to touch on a couple of events um, that are coming up in relation to bees. So, Cormac, you mentioned there was a World Bee Day on yes. May 20th. Well, the United mm-hmm. Nations World Bee Day is coming up the 20th mm-hmm. of May. One of the things is we we usually have big community events. Uh, we're not having those because of the pandemic. However, it is kind of a fun and awesome thing that's happening. Uh, there's going to be a mass dance 
mm-hmm. basically led, I believe, by Costa. <laughs> so it's going to be a waggle dance because that's how honeybees communicate. We're all going to try and do uh, upload a wa- mass waggle dance um, for everyone. There's, and that's going to be launched very soon. If you go to on, on social media, look up World Bee Day, there's also an official site, website for this. And the other thing will be uh, there's been a – it was nominated for two Oscar uh, – two, two uh, Academy Awards was Honeyland, which is this mm. beautiful film about a beekeeper in Macedonia mm. and then the challenges of, you know, modern modern world intruding. So, yeah, that's that's coming up as well. So go to the World Bee Day site, have a look at all the events we're doing. We've shifted everything to online this year. Unfortunately, we'll be back next year hopefully with um, with real events, but for this one there's some fun to be had. Fabulous. And that would also be the um, Australian World Pollinator Count. Uh, Spring Count is happening on the 8th to the 15th of November this year as well. It's great fun too, yeah. Wonderful. So um, if anyone wanted to get in touch with you, Cormac, um, about more information or swarm removal, uh, where could they find you? So Canberra Region Beekeepers has a swarm collector list that's for every suburb. So I'm just one of many, many people who collect swarms through the suburbs. So if you ever have a bee swarm, don't call a pest controller. Actually, one of the nice things about the local pest controllers, they generally won't spray bees. They'll call us instead. It's cheaper and also more effective. So, yeah, that's how you get in contact with us, um, Canberra Region Beekeepers. Fabulous. And, Jonathan, if people would like to learn more about the model that Hall Village is using and maybe use it as a blueprint for um, creating their own bee-friendly community, where should they go for that information? Yeah, thanks, Lena. We'd love to help. So you could write to us at hallhoney at gmail.com. Or you could visit our put a put a comment on our Facebook site, Be Friendly Hall Village. Be Friendly Hall Village. So yeah, drop us a note. We'd love to help other communities uh, help us perfect this blueprint. Fabulous. And then maybe on a, uh, a no social restrictions day, come out to hall and have a coffee and wander around the village. Absolutely, and uh, it's hopefully through all these projects and with the support of ACT government and others it'll just keep getting better Mm. well fantastic so we can't all be beekeepers but we can all be bee guardians by having bee friendly gardens and that's from Act for Bees that was a lovely quote from Julie Armstrong from Act for Bees so uh, thank you gentlemen both of you for coming on the show thank you to Cormac Farrell head beekeeper at Parliament House and Jonathan Palmer from the Hall Honeys and the Bee Friendly Village Project in Hall ACT it's been a real pleasure having you both here Uh, you've been listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio.